Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then Crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Welcome back to 80s Music Exposed. Woo-hoo! I'm Henry. And I'm Chris. And we made it to what year, Chris? 1981. Man, we the year-end show that we just did a whole year of records, and we had our year-end show, what we recorded it a couple of weeks ago. A lot of fun. Great to have both uh, Megan and Greg here with us, yep, who sure. added a different, I don't know, different cream to the coffee, I guess. Yeah, it was cool right. to have four of us doing a round table. I, I enjoyed it. And different things to bounce off of each other Yep, yep. instead of our tired old ass right. listening to each other bitch about records back and forth. Speaking of tired old asses, what did you uh, think of uh, our intro girl again here showing so, up? All right, so the deal was, the deal was... <laughs> That you would get rid of that that woman if we made it to 1981, and I hung in there all year. I feel like so it's time. I feel like the people wanted her. I feel she's part of the show, Henry. Shit, it's a Me Too moment. I feel like we got a Me Too moment. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of Me Too moments, Henry, I came up with a fun new way to uh, designate uh, how we do the uh, selection criteria. Really? I used a little acronym, Rags. R A G S rags. That's like a hipster tampon. <laughs> hey, you can get this at Trader Joe's. Rags. <laughs> well, that actually stands for uh, the Rolling Stone Top Twenty. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> the All Music Five Star Albums. Uh, G stands for Grammy nominated albums, and S stands for shit me and Henry just like rags that we're foisting upon you. <laughs> That's great. I'll try to remember what it stands for. Right. Rag the rags method of the selection. Rags method. And if you want a more detailed uh explanation, go back and listen to one of our nineteen eighty episodes. But for all you veterans, we're moving on. Which means Henry, what's the next segment? We are we have we're gonna go over the whiskey that we're drinking Woo! tonight, which is guess what? Sounds like we've already got start a good healthy Fight. start. Had <laughs> to get a run and start at the pond. <laughs> Fighting cock bourbon. Oh yeah, this is a good. This is we're, this is harkens back to the past. Mm-hmm. I brought you know a crash helmet and some some boxing gloves, and you brought uh, some boots to smash shit with. <laughs> fighting cock and well, me you did don't not know, mix well in the nineties. Ladies folks. and gentlemen, fighting cock was probably the worst thing to ever happen to Chris. So if uh, if we get this up, if something happens to me mid episode, well, it's kind of a Jekyll and Trump situation. <laughs> Jekyll and Trump. Yeah. Ah! It went from a boodle gig to a Trump situation. If you know what I mean. I was uh, I was mild mannered, normal uh, fella, and within twenty minutes of starting the fighting cock, I think I called one of my best friends uh, a bitch, <laughs> and. An, 
Maybe the C word or something. The C word popped out (laughs) for no apparent reason. And the next thing I know, they're hosing me down on the front porch. It was, uh, it actually was. There must be a reason why they call it Fighting Cock. We'll see by the end of the episode. I hope we don't get too upset about these albums. So so I better, I better lay off any records I know he likes. That's right. Just be careful with what you do. (laughs) Uh, Henry, let's talk about some significant events from and get in the mood for January 1981. Uh, the first one was uh, the minimum wage was raised in 1981 to $3.35 an hour. Wow. And God I, almighty. And I'll tell you something even more crazy. What? Hill Street Blues debuted on NBC. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Let's be careful that. out there. Can yep. you go back and watch Hill Street Blues like on Netflix or Hulu now? I bet you can. Henry, the Iran hostage crisis ended in January of 81. After 444 days, and if my memory serves, as a young person, I remember that the person given all the credit for that was because Ronald Reagan had just been sworn in, and they were terrified of Ronnie, John Wayne, president. Another important event, Henry, January 1981 was the debut of the very first DeLorean sports car. With the doors that opened up. The iconic this, car like wings. that was about to come in 1985 with Back to the Future that was, immortalized the DeLorean. Was it popular then? I don't think it was ever super popular except because of the doors opening up. But I, 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 my memory of it was it was too um, out there and expensive like for a normal normal person to own. Like esoteric. Right. Not even right. like a for, for Ferrari. No, even more crazy than that. And then I remember there were articles about one catching fire and blowing up on the highway. Oh, really? Sure. I don't remember that at all. Yep. But, Henry, we're not here to talk about all that. We're here to talk about the albums of January 1981. And I'm going to go ahead and get us started with a biggie, one one that I know you're excited to cover. Really excited, Chris. All right. It's called Paradise Theater. It's by a little band called Sticks, <laughs> S-T-Y-X. And this is Too Much Time on My Hand. Henry, I'm going to let you go ahead and let it rip on this. So, one of my I'm, this is the tenth record by a band called Sticks. When I was a kid, they would advertise the concert for Sticks, you know, in the area, 
and that they would always go like this. They'd go, Sticks. <laughs> Which was weird because when I listen to Paradise Theater, it's the complete opposite of Sticks. It's like something else completely. Yeah, I think we both are, we both are, right? Honestly, I didn't know you were going to talk about this, but I, so my, up until this point, my experience with Sticks as a child was they were my brother's last holdover 70s band before he got into cool music. Really? And so to me, Sticks was the embodiment of this, okay, slightly satanic name. Check. Yes, because of that. But that's, right. they even said it like that. 70s albums that were kind of like pieces of eight. And uh, there's another one with a snake in the title. So these kind of esoteric, mm-hmm. uh, mystical references, long-haired. In my mind, the 70s version of Sticks were just kind of like slightly uh, heavy metal not heavy metal, but did it feel like it, like in between? Did you know the song? And yeah, before all this, you knew the song "Renegade." Oh, mama, I can hear from a life. Yeah, I mean the long arm of the law. Yeah, I mean okay, they were they were kind of ominous and badasses, but but more like Molly Hatchet, Southern rock mixed in getting a heavy metal vibe, but not really metal. Hmm. This record is the beginning of something totally. <laughs> Totally different. Um, I don't know if I was aware of it as a child, but I had the same reaction going back and listening to it as you did. The first thing I wrote down here, Henry, is what the hell influenced these people? <laughs> See, like, I, what were this they? This is dangerous to? territory because I don't get it. Because I'm just going to say it, Dennis DeYoung. Some what? Come on, man. Really? Come on, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, he's kind of like a Broadway musical yeah, guy. Something happened. Yearning to get out. And yeah. I think this, he's finally... So so from my research, I, I realized on the album before, Dennis got to do a ballad called Babe, which I don't know if you remember, but Babe was huge. Here's a little bit of Babe for you. Everybody remembers that one, right? Sure. I think, and that was a big hit for Sticks. I think that bought him enough power to say, guys, what about a concept record about the Paradise Theater? Theater? With an R-E. Go on, Dennis. I think he was starting. Tell me more about the theater. I think the boys were just like, hey, he had a hit. Let's just let him do his thing. But. I guess what I'm asking you, Henry, is so these are we saying that his influences are what I'm questioning, or were the whole band have some sort of weird? Like I don't know what these people listen to. Like most of the time, I'm thinking bands in the '70s listen to either Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry, or they started listening to the Beatles a little bit already by then, and, and Led Zeppelin. They, what the but, hell? They, but this is their tenth one, right? So, so I don't know. So, and, and I, I'd have to go back and listen to the the uh, first. I mean, my, and apparently, as children, they formed in 1961. I read that Dennis DeYoung joined this band when he was 14. Right, right. I read that too, and they they formed in 61. So they were they'd been at it a while. I just. I was fascinated catching my mind wandering listening to this record going I, I, I wasn't listening to the songs I was going 
What would cause someone to write this? Well, see, you know, you do. I do did a little research. You look these guys up and look at what they. You can't possibly go back and listen to every single record, but you see how they're described, and it's usually like it goes progressive rock, hard rock. You look at this album, and it's called soft rock, and it gets it gets it gets more Dennis um, when we get to the next record, but we're not going to discuss that yet. But. Um, so, this this is the beginning of the end of Sticks. I think they got more and more fed up with him, and it kind of mirrored to me the journey journey because um, they were producing hits here. Henry, this album uh, went to number one on the charts. Uh, it was their fourth consecutive multi platinum album, mm-hmm. so it was successful. But I think the guys from the band just kept going. This is not what we. <laughs> this is not what we were originally all about, you know. And I know. Some of this also comes from uh, watching the old uh, VH1 behind the music about sticks, where the guys just became more and more. I say the guys like I like I'm a big fan of theirs, but hey, the guys. other members of the band became more and more um, estranged from what are we doing here? And then I think they kind of got um, we're starting to look like we're not really tough guys anymore. Like we're starting to get. <laughs> was that on the VH1? Yeah, that they were like he was wanting them to do a little bit more theatrical stuff. Hey, hey, wait, is this the same one where they show Dennis DeYoung at the end and they do a separate interview with yes. his ass and then they show him fronting his son's alternative rock band? Yes, yes. <laughs> You were on it. You saw it as well. I can't believe I remember that, man. But let me let me steer. Even at the time, I'm thinking something's up with this dude. But let me steer us back to just the record. Right. So on just the record's face, I actually kind of admired it for sticking to its concept record feel. For a band that seemed to not be very uh, intellectual, it was kind of cool that they did a concept record, even though I don't like uh, the concept or the songs. Well, so um, uh, you know, even even things out, we could probably both say we didn't like the record, right? I mean, sure, yeah. G- general, uh, probably safe to assume. You've got REO Speedwagon, you've got Sticks. That band kept coming up in my brain. But something about Sticks, even though you didn't like the music or didn't care for it, for me, I was like, okay, they've got it a little bit over these guys because oh. they because they actually like seem to care about what they're talking I think about that's to all an extent, the, right? I think that's what got me through the record. I kept thinking this is infinitely more listenable than Ario Speedwagon, which kept coming up in my head. And it was also funny trying to listen to him talk about being a work a day guy and all that kind of stuff when he has nothing in a in a, in a um yeah, in know. a Broadway context. He didn't know anything about right. that shit. So uh I, so the best I can say about this record is it's it's much better than Ario Speedwagon but high infidelity. In I don't know about opinion. much better. It is better. It was it was better. Okay, yeah. I uh, still think Dennis DeYoung is inauthentic. Just in general. Well we're gonna get we're gonna get the full inauthentic Dennis DeYoung on Mr. Roboto. Um, so that's Paradise Theater. It's, it was an it was a no for me back then as a child who actually was uh, the younger brother of a Sticks fan who hated it. And he hated it, that record. Yeah, this for him was oh, okay. like the end of the end for him. I didn't like it then because my older brother didn't like it. I still don't like it now. I don't know what my older brother thinks. He probably likes it. Um, <laughs> what do you think of it? Uh, yeah, that record sucked. Okay, well, that's, that's <laughs> that was uh, not it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next. What is our next record, Henry? Okay, the next one we're going to talk about "Trust" by Elvis Costello, and the track you want to play here 
is called Strict Time. I have to I have to go ahead and first say I I apologize to Elvis Costello. Apparently I have a personal uh mental block and a bias against the man because every time I discover a new Elvis Costello record that I haven't heard and I don't know why I haven't heard it, uh-huh. I instantly think this is not going to be good. I'm finally getting to the Elvis Costello records that I hate, which I haven't found one I hate, and I really enjoyed this record. And Henry, I've never heard this record before. You have not? Never. I thought this was his like his big hit or something. I for I'm, for me, like the first th- two or three records are like the great Elvis records, and then I keep waiting for shit to get bad, and I'm like, oh, trust is the one where it gets bad. I think this record was great. I, I think love it was it. good. I don't think it was good as Get Happy was. Um, I like it better than Get Happy, but not yeah. as much as the ones before. But I hate always doing that with great artists, comparing them only to their other records. This is really I, me, I like to just compare this record on its on its own merit. I want to come out of. I mean, you tell me tell me about the record, what you liked about it and stuff. Well, right? I think for this episode, and Henry, you you can tell me if if you don't see this, but there are three records that we're going to cover this episode that I think all kind of try to mine the same territory. And they all do it in a different way. I'm pretty sure Elvis is the leader in the gate of this type or style. Mm-hmm. And maybe the other two records that we're going to talk about in a little bit kind of um, are influenced by him a little bit. But the quality of this is great. I think the only thing that bothers me about this record is the ones that came before it are so much not better, but I mean, are really, really good right. that it kind of makes this one like if this had been his first album, I think we both would know a lot more about it than at least uh, I, I do now. I think in the 90s we would have been playing it back when we were playing some of his other records. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, uh, I, you know, I read a lot of stuff going into listening to it about uh, this that he was using different styles and he had kind of calmed down a little bit and this was more ballad. Honestly, I heard some more piano. Uh, Steve Naive, instead of just playing the quirky keyboard, has yeah. a lot more piano part. But it just sounds like he's not doing as much. Uh, they're not doing as many uppers as they were doing on Get Happy. The, supposedly, they were doing drugs, like at least in the first path. Right. They tried to record it once, one time through, did drugs on it. Still did drugs on the second time, but they were just happier with the result. 
I don't. I, I did not hear the, anything that the right made me, match of drugs. Right. <laughs> I did not hear anything that made me think this was his like Burt Bacharach. I was expecting like a Burt Bacharach turn, and um, I didn't get that at all. So I really, this, I really enjoyed the album, and I think there were a lot of great. Um, uh, singles uh, on the album, every, so, every individual songs. This is like great. five. This is his fifth r- album. Each one of them touched by Nick Lowe. Yeah, but the fourth with the attractions. Right. The first for, one. Fourth with right. the attractions. All of them touched by Nick Lowe, with the exception of the song "Big Sisters Closed." Right. Right. I've been thinking a lot about Elvis Costello, and I'm just going to come out with it and just say it. And at the risk of, it, it doesn't mean to be offensive at all. I feel it's weird. It's like a, I'm confessing that Elvis Costello records are objectively good in almost every, you can't, you, um, by all measurable scales that you and I would try to use lyric qual- writing, right. Qual- songwriting, mm-hmm. quality of, uh, all the uh, musicianship, production, mm-hmm. everything, is all great. that qualitative analysis would, would lend it to believe that. Yes. These, I, I, these I are, feel a butt coming on. These are fine records. The problem is I've had this same problem with all of Elvis Costello's work. There's some sort of disconnect for me. I'm even down with his sort of quirky vocal delivery. It's identifiable. I appreciate it and know it. But something about it, is it pretension that I'm, that I'm feeling about well, his work? A, I don't know. There's probably a, a obviously pretension involved. Yeah. I know that the big uh, famous split with Nick Lowe happens because of a uh, ego. Of that issue. kind of stuff? Yeah, they just the ego got too big. It's yeah. like I want to like it but can't. Right. I think I had that when I was younger. I think that's why I didn't ever even try albums like Trust. Yeah. But uh, there are a number of things I admired about it. Well, just uh, just trying to look at it as somebody saying to an audience, a wider audience, is this record worth going back and checking out if you're like me yeah. and you had forgotten this one and all you know is this year's model and armed forces. Right. This record is definitely worth but I had going a, back and listening. I had to. a better experience with Get Happy than I did with this one. How can I speak? How? Who am I to be, to be critical of Elvis Costello except to say that then? I like it. It's great. Maybe it's just not for me exactly. Well, and that's mm. the beauty of doing a show like this. We do have to <laughs> put, we do have to uh, slam sticks right up next to um, Elvis Costello. But I would yeah. I would say I had the different reaction in that I I own Get Happy. Uh-huh. It's never been my favorite, but it's always a quality. I think because this seemed new to me now, I enjoyed it more. It was like it was like if me or you had gone back and discovered a Smith's record that we didn't know about. Right. I would be so happy now to have these new batch of mm-hmm. Smith songs. Um, I would heartily recommend this for people that aren't already know about it, that are not sitting throwing stuff at their radio going, of course, this record's good. Right. If you're not a huge Ellis guy, <laughs> this, there, there's, you're going to enjoy going to work, pulling this one up and streaming it. So I'm going to sure. recommend this record. Uh, I, I can't not recommend it because I know that it's, a, it's very good. I happen to be partial to get happy, but that's my feelings on it. Well, the next record, I think Henry also sits in the same uh, general area of, uh, I I don't know if we even called it at the time, indie pop. Power pop. Power pop. I kind of hate to use those those words. But it is uh, Stands for Decibels by a band called the DBs. And uh, this song is called Dynamite.
So, Henry, listening to this record and the next one we're going to cover and the Elvis Costello record, I kind of in my mind went, you know what this one is? This one is kind of our. Yeah. Our. When I say our, I mean from the same goddamn state, from the same time period as mm-hmm. us. This is our response to Elvis Costello. <laughs> right. This is what we sound like in the Dirty South, white boys in the Dirty South in the 80s, <laughs> if we were doing this shit. I, I tried really hard to explain to myself what it is about this music that captured me emotionally. Can you identify it at all? Do you know what it is? Well, I first want to say this so that people don't uh, give us uh, angry tweets who think that the DBs were from New York. They were all from Winston-Salem, and they by way they all went to New York when right. they became the DBs. But this is definitely the beginnings of the Southern um, jangle pop revolution that's about to happen with REM and uh, a lot of other bands. I think for us, Henry, there's something so inherent in it because it comes from so much of the same. These guys grew up and listen to all the same things we did, mm-hmm. that we understood this without having to think about it. Did we hear Big Star before no. DBs? No, no. See, my memory is faulty because, well, now I, 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 we for, you and I first listened to this, I want to say 92, 93. You had this one. You bought this I had, one. I went and found a, like a German import version of this, which I still have. Yeah. That not the IRS version. Right. And I maybe, uh, and I listened to it a lot, um, with you. Probably didn't listen to it for a good long time until I was older and, the, and things started streaming. I didn't own a copy of it. See, now for me, when we first listened to it, I can still remember first listening to it. And it, to me, sound, it, it, we didn't, I didn't even have to talk about this album. It just sounded the way I understood what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, independent college rock to sound like for a guy from where I was. Now I'd already heard Chronic Town, uh, REM records that actually came out after this record, mm-hmm. but this record to me sounded like, oh yeah, this is what North Carolina would sound like. There was some at least some, some earnest sort of herky jerkiness in it. Uh, I did read there's a, an extensive bio on the DB's website. Like I'm talking. You know, city and what it was. Weirdly enough, from it seems as if the DBs they weren't as solidified as a gang. There was a lot of top end. Let's do this song, that song, stuff. And record labels didn't sign a whole band. They just wanted a song with this guy. Do you remember? Yeah, and I think I think their output also shows as they did later and and later records came out. They became more and more almost like solo records that well, they, they were, each worked on. I was going to use I was going to call them Lennon and McCartney, but it wasn't. It was Stamey Holsapple. Stamey Holsapple. Holsapple. And so the members of the band were uh, uh, Chris Stamey, Peter Holsapple, uh, Will Rigby, and Gene Holder. I'll, and uh, I have those memorized, weirdly enough. Yeah, we got to get out of North Carolina <laughs> fanboy mode. We, we have okay. to own up and say okay. to people. But we, we, I know we're talking to a wider audience. And I, I, I came into this thinking, how can I show people that aren't as enamored as we were as right. kids with the with the DBs? I want to I want to say approach this from the context. If you're a big early REM fan and you think, oh, I know '80s REM, I'm into like document and and. Uh, a life's rich pageant. If you don't know the DBs, then you're in for a real treat because yep. these guys, early output, 
bring it. And of course, Peter Holsapple ended up joining uh, REM. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of cool because Henry, we may be some of the only people that actually got to Big Star from the DBs and Ooh. not the other way around. And um, when you listen to it again this time, didn't you pick out? Oh my God, he sounds like uh, Alex Chilton. Yeah, he sounds like Alex Chilton or um, or Chris Bell. And then and yeah. then you're also listening. I remember we would we were so enamored with this. We hunted back. I think I got to the Velvet Underground from this. Really? So it was like you know we were we were going backwards through things. Um, right, digging back, digging back, and instead of the other way around, which I I'm, I'm sure a lot of kids are doing these days as well. But so Stamy would write the strange stranger stuff. Holsapple would write the more sort of uh, accessible stuff. Accessible stuff, right? And something really real and true about the uh, this album has a lot of. Something to do with the pace. I know they spent a little time in Hoboken playing at the same place that the Feelys did. Right. And I'll, I can kind of hear a little bit of I can too. Kind of this sort of anxious kind of herky jerkiness to it. That's the only way I can and, describe and, and, it. And maybe um, a little bit of a nerd, um, out of place, nerdy white guy kind of thing going on in both bands that. Like they called it the Hoboken sound a little bit. I can see that, you know, yeah. but I want, I do want to say. If you're trying to find, if you're, if you're interested in this record and you like this record, it's probably the best for my money, DB's record. And I, I, I like their other output later on, but like this record to me is the definitive DB's record. Yeah. And it was first put out, the record was first put out by this place called Albion Records in, in, um, the UK. And, uh, they did the record and then, um, it was over and then, they financed a, another one. Basically, Albion was trying to break them over there, overseas, not right. here. Which is the which is the version I have because I I, I had to get it on uh-huh. import because I think it was out of print on IRS for a while. Even it in was the 90s. they re released it in 19, IRS re released it in 1989. I'm I'm assuming it was in response to some REM. I think stuff. it was trying to, and obviously that's why IRS bought the catalog. And then, believe it or not, Capital re-released the thing again in 2009. The shit had legs, man. It sure did. It's worth it. And that's it's a great something record. about a record that um, it's like that that has an enduring appeal that doesn't go away. I mean, that's the the mark of of, of a good record. And it's so. also going to appeal to you folks out there that are into like uh, what we what I consider like typical 80s new wave that you hear on the 80s at 8. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. If you're looking for something fresh but has that same kind of sound, you're going to love this record. So, Henry for me, it's a recommend. Yeah. I mean, I had not heard of it in 1981, but if I had, I would have recommended it because it comes from Thumb, same thumbs up, and of course, that's not prejudiced at all. <laughs> a little bit prejudiced, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it does come from this from a good place. I think yeah. I will stand behind the recommendation and um, amen, and say go check this one out. Um, our next record, Henry, is what? It is going to be Rick Springfield, and the album is called Working Class Dog. The song we're going to play is not the one. It's not the one everybody's thinking. It's going to be, I've done everything for you.
He didn't write that song. It was a song written and sung by Sammy Hagar, and he wow. covered it. I did it's not the, know that. It's the only one. So, Chris, what did you think about this? Thing? Well, I, wa- I want to apologize for putting a song up there that wasn't his. I didn't know that. The reason I put this one up here was oh, I had really? forgotten this was a hit until I re-listened to the. To the I did too. And then I was like, "Oh, he had two hits. I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him credit for that." So, my apologies to uh, Rick for the man always gets short shift. I feel like. Um, in every way, he he always wanted to be known as a musician first, and he got labeled a soap star, even though he'd been doing the music for a long time. It, I he started in, in 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 Australia. He was a star over there, right? And then he got the General Hospital gig and became a teen idol, and he never could get the music um, respect that he thought he deserved. Now, I will claim that he didn't deserve the music credit, <laughs> really? but what I will say, I I, I can't talk I, a lot about this record because. I find it really interesting. It's not that far off from the DBs or Elvis Costello. At least in concept. And right? not to get too music nerdy about it, but I really listened to this one multiple times trying to figure out what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. The choruses are all in a major key. Oh, really? So if you listen to the DBs, the choruses are all in minor key, so there's a melancholic mm-hmm. uh, thing, even though it's pop. And Elvis Costello kind of goes back and forth. But I'm listening to the verses of these songs going, this one's fine. This one's going to be fine. And then he gets to this choruses. And I don't know if it's him or if it's the people working with him, but all the choruses are stuff that like teenagers can get happy about and it ruins the song. So it does these things like, I've done every dun, 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 and it just stays in that kind of major, um, happy mode. So I, I feel like he was close. Um, to the other power pop guys, I think he needed some more mel. Hey, hey dude, learn to play an A minor instead of just playing <laughs> an A, and you would have had some some. some I think stuff going I, on here. The record impressed me as being emo. I think emo kind of except mining the same emo, territory. Very good, emo, I, like, I agree. but colored with some typical male misogyny of the time. Very much right. so, right? And did, I don't know if you recognize that, but I did for whatever reason. Sure. It, and it wasn't so much in Jesse's Girl, except for the emo part of Jesse's Girl, which is like I'm looking in the mirror all the time, wondering what she don't see in me. I've been funny. I've been cool with the lines. Isn't that the way love's supposed to be? Very shallow. But but, but I'm gonna, time, but you know I, I'm going to say this, Henry. I, we never criticized the band that I kept comparing this record to. We never criticized Cheap Trick for being shallow, mm-hmm. and Cheap Trick is just as shallow as this record. Let me, I felt like there was a lot of Cheap Trick going on here, but again, every chorus was major. But like I started some of these songs out going, how different is this verse from the start? Okay. I mean, Rick Nielsen's guitar playing is like crazy on Cheap Trick, and and there's none of that going on here. But so I know he, I know Cheap Trick fans are going to kill me for comparing Rick Springfield to Cheap Trick, but I heard a lot of similarities. Yeah, uh, the uh, the guy that produced the record, his name was Keith Olson, and he was the same dude that was working on Pat Benatar's record at the time, and he called in 
Pat Benatar, her husband, husband is the, the guitar player. I think he wrote a lot of the songs too. Uh huh. He he got called in to to, kind of to play to play on a couple of these songs. Which, from what I didn't read the book, but from what I understand, the book it kind of chapped his ass a little bit. I went to a Rick Springfield concert with my wife, and this might have been a decade ago. And he was always playing guitar with like roses and stuff. Has a lot of female fans, but he can play. Yeah, he can play. And but the, I hate to say this, but he's nowhere near as bad as like Sticks. At least in terms of just. The song, see, what I wrote. Okay, if you didn't have, let me ask you this. If you didn't have the soap star teenage heartthrob thing attached to it, would you think that this is really any worse than a romantics record? No. Um, But the romantics get infinite more, like, credibility than he does. And he's really sore about it, by the way. Really? I mean, he's really been out of shape. Well, then maybe don't go be a soap star. Yeah. Trying to get to America. He was 32. But he didn't think that would. He was thirty-two his years old. Thing. Let <laughs> me read you something from Everybody's Girls. Kind of funny okay. now. Who would have believed this seasoned connoisseur lady killer like me would get hurt by a girl like you? And they got names for dirty little girls like you, honey. It ain't nice, no. But they call you Everybody's Girl. He might as well have written a song called "She's a Ho." <laughs> but in it, but my here's the thing. I found the songs to be semi-durable, in a way. Until Is that you, how you found it? Until you get to the choruses, until, and then they become then, exactly what you—you you nailed it. They and become that's the emo problem, songs. right? Right. It's almost like it's it, to me. It's not like it's the same chorus in every song. So weird. Uh, I think, that but I, I also don't fault him for it because that produced hits. I mm-hmm. mean, if that was your goal, I guess. I guess what I'm saying is now don't cry about artistic credibility. When you probably did that on purpose. Surely to God, by his fifth album, he knew what a minor chord was. Yeah. By the way, his real name is Richard Lewis Springthorpe. Well, I would have changed that, too. Guess how old he is now. He's got to be 70-something, right? 69. Wow. Does he still want to... He doesn't look like it. Is he like Ralph Macchio? He's eternally... He's eternally youthful, this guy. If you look at him, you would know... You would. He looks... He was better than we do. Oh, I'm... (laughs) He does. Well, yeah, of course he does. I, I, like straight up. He always did like and always just, will. He's, he was go, he, and one of his problems was that he was a good looking man and that, and RCA smelled the, uh, smelled. Oh money. man, at the time being on Tiger Beat seems like a good idea. And being they were on the like, cover of oh, Tiger Beat. Oh, wait, he got a part on General Hospital. We got a record in the can for this guy. Boom. Let's do it. We're doing it. Well, Bam, Jesse's girl. I obviously am not going to recommend this record, but I do want to say it was infinitely more interesting to me going back and listening to it. You're gonna you're gonna recognize a lot of the songs on this if you do want to go back and pick it up, but I am not going to recommend this one. How about you, Henry? I can't, in good faith, recommend it. You've probably already heard what you need to hear on the album, right? You know, yeah, that's true, including so, the Sammy Hagar song, which I didn't know was a yeah, Sammy Hagar song. So. I apologize. Our last record of the episode, Henry, is called In Our Lifetime, and it's by Marvin Gaye. And this song is called Far Cry.
pretty much write a novel about the making of this record and Marvin Gaye at the time. And I I have to be honest, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't either. It's his 16th album. Right. The second second to last. Yeah, and this guy's living hard, apparently, at this point. And has done all... He's he's doing blow all over the place. He tried to kill himself by doing how much... He he tried to do a quarter or something crazy like that. Uh, and one night, he did so much blow on purpose to kill himself. And guess what, folk? Didn't kill him. He learned how to free bass while doing this one. Yeah. I read. I don't usually recommend this, but I would tell anyone who's interested, go read the Wikipedia page for this album. <laughs> It'll it be will, a surprise. It really. will blow your mind. Um, so he started how did, out. Is, you'll start, first, you'll think, how did they even make a record? <laughs> I don't know how a record got made. How did he even make Because at one point, he's living in a fucking bread van somewhere. And he's, <laughs> right? on, the, he's on the run from Motown. I don't know. I mean, they, they're like after him because they've spent money on the original record he had come up with um, before. That was going to be called Love, Love Man. Man. And yeah. let me tell you, did you read this? Did you find this? The reason he started now, this is this this sounds like a coke-addled Marvin Gaye. The reason he came up with the concept for Love Man was he had decided that Michael Jackson and Prince had taken over his sexy mantle, and he needed to win it back. So he was going to do an album called Love Man. I didn't know this, but I found did you did you find the Dinah Shore daytime show? Um, performance that he did no but i heard about it okay so there was one song that he made for love man there's a performance you can find it on youtube of of a song called ego tripping out which was the song he had made which was going to be the start of this uh love man album and i guess they they went ahead and produced a single he has his own studio of course or at least he still does at this point i don't know it's it's a weird it's a weird performance it's like a 10 minute long song and he's super coked out, and it's talking about his own ego and how big of a love man he is. Something, and it never stops. And he's got these weird, young, different young ladies that come out and dance around him one at a time on the, for like two minutes. This is on the YouTube and this is, video. Yeah, and the cool thing is, I remember my mom liked the Dinosaur Show. This is like if you went on Ellen <laughs> and did a ten-minute coked out weird sexual healing type performance. So he started making that record. Apparently, Henry. Got in a real bad coke way, uh-huh. lost all his money, got back into this uh, 
depression because of the wife that had left him. In the IRS, he owed a four-point-some guy off of money. And just skips, skips the country and goes to England. And he had to go on a tour. At some and, point in there, he went on a tour. And uh, and by the way, this is hard, man. When you, um, you just, do when you just did a record that was a flop all about your divorce, which is your second divorce, which is you were divorced the first time from your boss's the guy that runs Motown Records, daughter, and he's the one still fronting you the money for these records. That's hard. You're in a hard. I don't care if you're Marvin Gaye or not. That's a hard spot to be in. So I don't know how they got back around to making this record, Henry, but apparently a lot of the musical tracks that he had cut for Love Man, uh-huh. he, he rewrote the lyrics mm-hmm. and changed around because now he was kind of more depressed and melancholy and so I guess he had got this album to where he kind of wanted it in between coming out of his free bass and haze. He had his still had his own studio, I think. Somebody, the guy that was producing it, stole the master, took him back to another studio, added shit to it, remixed it, and that's what came out. It's like, I don't know who did it. I read that Motown, Nameless Faceless Motown, got a hold of it and just did overdubs. But he hated it. He's always hated this record because he thinks they fucked his record. They did. In fact, he made some sort of comment about Picasso if he had taken Picasso. Well, first of all, if you look at the original um, album art that they put it out with, the the title of the record has a question mark at the end. Right, right. In our lifetime, it should be called. Right. Not in our lifetime. Right. (laughs) In our lifetime? Like, (laughs) you know, it has a question mark. And so they did reissue it the like kind of the right way, I think. I'm not sure. But I've never in, I've never in all my years of reading about uh artists versus the big industry record companies pulled more for the record label than I did in this story. Because because he seemed like a complete waste. <laughs> it seems like of a, yeah. Yeah, it just seems like I didn't know Marvin Gaye just turned into like he he was probably in the studio being like, Hey man. <laughs> that's the that's the worst. Why do I feel the same way? Our, why it, it got great reviews back then? They well, liked it. That's the other thing I want to say. I guess me and you might differ on this. I like the record. No, I didn't like it at all. I um, thought it was pretty good. I think Far Cry is probably the best song. That's it is on the it. best song on it, and the reason why is because the bass kicks ass on that. The bass is great on it. Because <laughs> when I had it in my headphones, like. Well, the bass is good. Yeah, yeah. The rest of it, dude. All right, and he can. I can say this because he's gone now, and he won't hear it. It sounded like some coked up dude trying to preach at me. The whole fucking record. Hey man. Hey, you know you need to pay more attention to the artist. Hey man, I got like he's trying to drop some knowledge on me that he oh, doesn't. Dude. You know, I found some, the whole record sounds like that. I found some YouTube interviews with him right around this period when he's in England and he won't go back and he's high as balls. And the interviewer guy has got literally got that like, this guy is out of his mind. And he's just saying stuff that you're just like trying to drop something. on. I didn't me. know he was like that. My Marvin Gaye was always like the 60s and 70s. Like, like what's going on, Marvin Gaye? Not this guy. The, it, he seemed, and then even sexual healing, I thought he had like got, I thought he'd gotten fixed. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> but he he was still doing drugs and feeling guilty and wanted to and tried to rewrite the record as some sort of artistic cautionary tale that really just came off 
that comes off now. I guess in twenty nineteen. I guess the reason I like it just somebody trying to just do a bunch of apologetics. Hi. I guess the reason I like it is shockingly the reason I think sometimes you like a record. I just like. It just sounds broken and That's the, fucked up. I totally get I know that feeling, man. And it's I don't have it on this one, but I know the feeling. And it's like nice to listen to like a legend just sound weird, broken, and <laughs> fucked up for some reason. <laughs> I have this, like a train I have this Harry Nilsson and John Lennon record called Pussycats, which is a famous, if you don't know about it, look it up. Yeah, it's when John Lennon and Yoko Ono had split, and he's living with Harry Nilsson for a while. And it just sounds like two guys that are broken and fucked up. But it sounds great. This one really sounded interesting to me because it's like, this guy's got real problems. (laughs) And it's interesting to me. I'm going to say if you like weird explorations, I'm going to give this a thumbs up. Yeah, I'm giving this a thumbs down. Uh, Outside of the bass part of that one song, uh, the whole thing just feels hollow. While you're while you're listening to it, go find these weird '80s YouTube clips too of of Marvin Gaye. It'll freak you out. And the Wikipedia story is amazing. Yeah, read the whole story. Right, right. About it. Um, we're we're not doing it total justice here because well, you can't. You could do a whole podcast on it probably, and you want to talk to the people involved. I really want to talk to the guys involved with the record. Maybe for our Patreon account, like f- we'll we'll track down somebody that's involved with this record <laughs> and get a, get an actual accounting of what's going on. But Henry, uh, so that's that was our five records for January of 1981. But we still haven't heard from uh, Megan and let's get her opinion on things. So, what do you think, Megan? Take it away. everyone it's megan here for our january 1981 episode i'm really excited to be starting a whole new year in the 80s um we're one year down and um for me i think the further we get into the 80s for the most part the music just gets better so i'm really excited to keep going here thank you so much for listening uh for this episode i was going to cover an album that henry and chris didn't discuss originally, but um, I really couldn't find any other albums that had been released this month. And actually, one of the albums that they covered really sticks out to me, so I want to talk about it. Um, It's not Paradise Theater by Styx. I've never been big on Styx. They're kind of a little too dad-rocky for me. Um, And plus, they did Mr. Roboto, which I just don't think I can take them seriously ever after a song like that. Um, I also love Elvis Costello, and of course, with Trust being discussed in this episode, I just wanted to mention that, although that album never really stood out to me in his catalog, so I'm going to let the boys cover that, and we'll call it good. I do want to talk about the DB's debut studio album, which is Stands for Decibels, and whatever an album of this quality is a band's first effort, I'm always just so blown away by that. Like, what am I doing with my life? Um, I love this album, and it's not really surprising that I do, if you know me. Um, I love The Replacements. I love Big Star, bands like that. And you can really hear those influences and the seeds, really, of college rock and jingle pop in this record. And I just think it's lovely. Um, Also, this album has some kind of weirder-sounding songs, too, like She's Not Worried, Um, and then, of course, alongside, like, the poppier tunes, like, Black and White. 
Uh, there is a fun fact about the DBs that I wanted to share. Um, if there are any other Big Star fans out there, um, Stamey, he played bass with Alex Chilton in New York, which I thought was really cool. Um, I, I didn't know that they had really worked together. Some of my favorite songs off this record are The Fight, uh, Tear Jerkin, um, of course, She's Not Worried, which I mentioned before. Um, I just think this album's awesome. It, it wasn't a critical, it was, it was a critical success, but it wasn't a commercial success. So I think that, unfortunately, at this time, just that type of music hadn't gotten big yet, like it would later on with bands like R.E.M., I do want to mention that uh, I went to a few shows recently, including Tommy Simpson of The Replacements with the Lemonheads. I was mainly there for Tommy, who was great, um, as usual. I've seen him before. He's awesome. Um, I did also enjoy the Lemonheads, and I like them. Um, Evan Dando, the lead singer of the Lemonheads, he was wearing these like bright blue pants, and there was a rip right next to his fly, so it looked like he had two flies, which was kind of funny. Um, they sounded great, too. Um, not like that's the only part of the concert that was worth mentioning. Um, I also went to see Johnny Marr, who is just fantastic. If you get a chance to see him, definitely go check him out. Uh, he sounds great, he's really energetic, and he shreds like a motherfucker. Um, he also played some Smith songs, too, which I thought was cool. Um, I like his solo stuff as well, So, but he really had a good balance going on. And he just seems like a really cool, like, laid-back guy. And, I don't know, it's it's hard not to think about Morrissey when, you know, you see Johnny Marr. Because, it's like, I love Morrissey, but he needs to chill out a little bit and take a few notes from Johnny Marr. I, I think Johnny's doing it right. Plus, Johnny looks great, too, um, even though I was kind of far back at the show, but he's a handsome guy. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and please find us on social media. We're, we're out here for you, so come check us out. Uh, we have a Facebook at 80s Music Exposed, and we're on Instagram at 80s374, and Twitter at 80s Exposed. Please also feel free to follow me on Instagram, too. You can find me at Bastards of Young 92 So thanks for listening, guys. Bye. All right. There we are. That's it. That's January 1981. We're on our way, Henry, through 1981. That's you At said, a gallop. You sounded like Casey Kasem. We're on our way through <laughs> 1991. It's, not, it's actually 1981, Henry. 1981. We're on our way with 1981. Keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching, reaching for, the for the stars. Somebody get me a fucking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, record of the month. What's it going to be? Well, for you, Henry, I knew what it was going to be. Yeah. It's going to be DB stands for decibels. That's correct? right. Exactly. Well, I don't think we've ever done this before, but I can't in good conscience not recommend db stands for decibels as well so i'm gonna go with you a rare a rare uh tie tie uh game yep yep we both we both went with the same record but it's worth every second of a listen so go ahead and check that one out excellent henry also uh, i just wanted to mention what we've got coming up on the next episode uh we've got a little phil collins Ooh. rush i think this guy has had more appearances on our show than anybody so far brian eno 
With Golly, Brian Eno and David Byrne. We can't get enough, Brian Eno. <laughs> the guy is the, prolific at this follow point. Follow us on Twitter, Brian Eno. <laughs> Hashtag shout out Brian Eno. Hashtag shout out. Exactly. <laughs> We're also going to hear some Stray Cats and a little Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden? Yes, sir. Didn't we listen to them once before? I don't think we've no, done Maiden No, I got him confused with Judas Priest. Yep, yep, yep. Don't confuse your priest and your Maiden. All right, so, uh, yeah, that's next month. We can't wait to get to it. And, um, and so Henry, many, take us out of here. Many thanks to our show producer, Greg Levin. And if you like the way that we sound, you can talk to him at Urban Dweller. That's U-R-B-N-D-W-E-L-L-R on Instagram, and it's the same on Twitter. Also, thanks to Megan Maddox. She's a new member of our team, so if you want to start a social media argument with us, you'll be arguing with her. This just out, we now have a Patreon page. What is that? Tell me so exactly what that folks means. Folks can subscribe to our to our Patreon on two different levels. The first one uh, is called Money for Nothing. One dollar uh, a month gets you a, a shout out on our show. Five dollars a month is we'll call you the Material Girls. So you get to suggest records for us to, to review. But Henry, let me ask you this. For people that do the $1 a month or the $5 per month con- uh, donation, um, do they get the extra content at both levels? Like right. I know Megan has done an interview, a really cool interview, with an author of a book about Chris Bell from, from Big Star. Right. And it's really cool. And I think either level, you're going to get that content if you're a Patreon subscriber. Right now, um, I'm willing to say that anybody who subscribes to our Patreon content, we will get them access to uh, Megan's interview. Yes. Right. So anytime uh, we we have extra cool content like that, that might be a little bit outside the parameters of the show. If you subscribe at either the $1 or the $5 level, you get access to that content, including... A shout out on the show. And at the $5 level, you get to pick an album for us to review. And you can pick anything you want. And Henry, even if we don't like it, we're going to review it. Isn't that correct? Right, right. We are their bitch. Megan, if we blew it, get us right, okay? We're old. Anyway, uh, please, like I said, please rate and review us on uh, on all the applicable places and share it with your friends. You can chat us up on Twitter at 80sexposed, 80-S-E-X-P-O-S-E-D. We'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Or email us at 80smusicexposed. That way, too. At gmail.com. Any saved rounds, Chris? I don't really check email. Guess what? What? I made you a mixtape. Mixtape.